team, team who have all left me now, apart from Josh. just want to say thank you so much for having us this week. It's been wonderful. Um, uh, I, I myself personally have got to go on, uh, have gone to a couple of home groups which have been really lovely. Um, just had the most remarkable time for anyone who's here from the home group uh, or from those two home groups. So just on behalf of the team, I want to thank you and just want to encourage you. You've been such a welcoming church and uh, so I want to encourage you and like Andrew said this morning, I guess, just to continue to encourage you to continue in that vein. Let's pray, shall we? Father, as we come... Uh, to this passage in Philippians 1. Lord, we ask that you would help us, uh, Father, to see things perhaps that we have not seen before, perhaps to think about things that we have not thought before, but encourage us, uh, Father, to make the gospel central in our lives. And I pray, uh, Lord, that in uh, learning what it means to make it central, that it would become central to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're looking at Philippians chapter 1. I don't know how much you know about the book of Philippians, but it's a remarkable book. Uh, because It's remarkable because where Paul writes this book, he's actually in prison. And 12 times in this book, it might surprise you that he mentions joy. That's more than any other book that he writes. Okay, So remember, he's in prison. He rejoices and he wants his readers to rejoice. Chapter 4, verse 4, we perhaps all know the verse, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. And couple this with his well-known instruction on anxiety. In the same chapter, just a couple of verses later, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. He even has the nerve to tell his readers, now remember he's in prison, he even has the nerve to tell his readers politely in verse 11 of chapter 4 that he is not in need. And then he goes on in verse 12 to say that he has learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Remarkable. In four chapters, Paul displays quite the opposite kind of demeanor and attitude that we would expect someone to display who is in prison. But what we need to know about this man Paul is that he finds himself in this situation. He hasn't simply just learned to grin and bear it, as it were. He hasn't simply just learned to rejoice, to not worry and to be content and to say, well, this is my lot. Well, let's rejoice. But he has learned to look at this kind of situation as something that advances his passion, which is the gospel. Look at Philippians 1.12. That's where we're going to start. Philippians 1 verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me? Now just for a moment, we need to go back. If you just go back in your Bibles for a moment, just a, just a few pages really, back to the book of Romans. Because we need to understand what has happened to Paul. 
We know that he's in prison. But I want you to see how he has got there and how, and how that has come about and what he actually expected. Look back at Romans chapter 15 and we'll start at verse 19. And there Paul says that by all sorts of miracles through the power of the Spirit, the God, he has brought the gospel to the ancient world. He says from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, he says, I fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And he says, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where it's not been known. And then he goes down to verse 22 and he explains, I've been so busy preaching the gospel. This is why I've often been hindered to coming to you, to you in Rome. And then in verse 23, he says, but now there is no more place for me to go. I finished preaching the gospel throughout all of these areas. And now so the door is open for me to come. So he says, I've been longing for many years to visit you. And in verse 24, he says, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. Now go down to verse 28. He says, so after I've completed this task, this task that he's got to do in Jerusalem for the Lord's people, he says, after I've done this and have made sure that they've received this contribution, he's going to drop off some money that he's been collecting for them. He says, I'll go to Spain and visit you on the way. And then he says, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. So Paul is at the end of his missionary work in what was called Asia Minor. And he has finished preaching the gospel and now he wants to go to Rome because he's, he's, he hasn't seen these people before. He wants to go and be a missionary in Spain and this is now the opportunity to stop off at Rome on the way. Instead, what happens, and we could go into the book of Acts and pick this up if you wanted, but instead what happens when he gets to Jerusalem, he gets arrested and put in prison. And ultimately, he does end up in Rome, but in prison. And so his plans don't work out the way that he wanted. He never actually got to Spain, at least that we know of. Perhaps he did and we're not aware of it. But his plans actually don't work out the way that he intended. Quite the opposite. I remember a time many years ago, back in the middle of the well, early 1990s, when I was preparing to go or wanting to go to Dallas Seminary in the United States. And the first thing I wanted to do was go and see the elders of my church. This was back in New Zealand. And I just really believed that it was important to have the blessing of my elders and to, to, to have them affirm, confirm, and to say, yes, we're behind you. We'll support you in prayer. We'll support you financially. We think this is a good thing. I, th- I thought that would be uh, a way that, you know, it was kind of the, that would be from the Lord if they were to say yes. And if they were to say no, well, that would be disappointing. But I really believed that I couldn't progress onto Dallas Seminary unless I had their uh, okay. 
And so I remember Kathleen and I, we were just newly married at the time, been married for a year or so, and we had this meeting with the elders, and I had done a whole lot of work putting together a budget and, and, and finances, how we, uh, how we plan to finance our time in Dallas. And then at the end of all that, they said no. They said that they didn't think it was a good idea, not because they didn't think that it wasn't a good idea for me to go, but they thought financially, financially, uh, they didn't see how it was going to work. Immediately, I just wept. Tears. Just couldn't help it. They just, I just been something I'd been thinking about, dreaming about for such a long time. I'd only been a Christian a few years, but I'd been thinking about it ever since the end of my first year of being a Christian. And here I was really believing that I could not go without these men's approval. And they just squashed it like that. And I remember following that, the weekend following that, my in-laws took uh, my wife and I away for the weekend And all I did for the whole weekend was pout. You know what I mean by pouting? You can tell when someone's pouting. Just feeling sorry for myself. And I think probably, really, you know, I hate to admit this, but I think probably really hoping that they would say, you know, it's okay. We'll provide, we'll provide the money that you need. Didn't happen. We did end up going to Dallas though, but that is another story. And if you want to know how that finished up, and we did have their approval by the way, but if you want to know how that story worked out, then you'd have to talk to me later about that. But Paul here is in the middle of a situation where his plans didn't work out. But you see, he doesn't pout. He doesn't look for pity. He doesn't feel sorry for himself. What he says is quite remarkable. Look again in chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know. I want you to know. There's a a lot of things that he could have said. I want you to know how bad it is in here. I want you to know how my plans haven't worked out. I want you to know. Whatever, whatever, whatever compassion and, 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 and pity you're feeling for me, I want you to know this. That where I am, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Paul wants to alleviate any concern that what he's going through is something that they need to feel sorry for. Think of it. He was on his way to a good cause, to be a missionary in Spain. He simply says, what has happened to me? Doesn't mention anything else. Doesn't mention anything about his plans or his present conditions. What has happened to him can be summed up in one word. I won't, I won't, I won't look at the verses, but I'll just refer you to them if you want to glance at them. Verse 7, verse 13, verse 14, and verse 17 all mention the word chains. That's what's happened to him. Chains. What do chains do? Chains restrain. They hinder. They prevent. I actually looked that up in a Greek dictionary. But you don't need to look it up in a Greek dictionary, do you? Because we all know what chains do. That They're a hindrance. They prevent us from moving forward. There's probably nothing more frustrating in our lives than when we feel like something is hindering us. 
You know, I, I, um, I'm, I don't get impatient in traffic, I don't think, but I always like to be moving forward, right? And I, for the last four years, living, living over the road in North Lakes and travelling into Tawong, and, uh, you know, it's quite a hike in traffic. And, and there's various ways in which you can, uh, well, it's particularly coming home, uh, there's various ways in which you can come home. Obviously, getting there is, is as well. But coming home, there's various ways. And, you know, you, you get stuck in traffic. There's, and, you know, I just, I'll pull off onto the side street and just, you know, this, this will have to probably go parallel with Gippy Road or something. And I can't tell you how many times I ended up somewhere and it ended up taking me an hour and a half to get home. Dead end streets, cul-de-sacs. Now I've got an app, it's called Waz or something, and it actually tells me the fastest route to work so I don't have to make those mistakes again. But, you know, maybe you can relate to that. We always have to be moving forward. I feel like that when it comes to traffic. We like to be moving forward. We don't like to be hindered. But, you know, there's more hindrances in life than just traffic or prison. Think about some with me. Maybe you feel hindered by your bank balance. Or maybe you feel hindered by the kind of house that you live in. Or the kind of job that you have. Or perhaps the way that you've been treated in your job. Maybe you feel hindered by your kids, if you have kids. Maybe you feel hindered by your qualifications or lack of qualifications. Maybe you feel hindered by your personality, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. Maybe you feel hindered by your health or by your weight or by some kind of disability. There's all sorts of ways in which we can feel hindered as though we're not making progress. Paul says to his readers and to us here that his chains, what we would think of hindrances, are actually moving things forward. He says that his chains are actually serving to advance the gospel. And this word advance here occurs in chapter 1, verse 25. Convinced of this, Paul says, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. There's the word advance. It's the word that the NIV translates as progress. Paul is more concerned about the gospel's progress than his own progress. And he gives two reasons for this. One is in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ It's become clear throughout the whole palace guard. Now, what he's talking about are a whole lot of Roman soldiers. And these Roman soldiers, probably not all of them, but but some of them, had the responsibility of being chained to Paul's wrist day and night. Now, they'd rotate. They'd take turns, okay? They wouldn't be, they wouldn't have someone there 24-7, but, but they would rotate around and so Paul would always be chained to a soldier 24-7. Now, you can imagine being chained to someone all that time. It kind of boggles the mind. But you'd, have, you'd expect Paul to get into conversation. I mean, you'd probably expect the Roman soldier to at least say, so what are you here for? 
Paul would say, well, I'm glad you asked. I'm, I'm, I'm here because I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, who's he? Well, I'm glad you asked. And, and so he would have opportunity after opportunity to speak the gospel. And they would go back and they would tell these other Roman soldiers, no doubt, who would say, you know, there's this guy in prison. You know, he claims to be innocent. And he's, and he's here for this person called Jesus Christ. And so the gospel has gone throughout the whole palace guard. That's one way in which Paul's imprisonment has helped to advance the gospel. He gives a second way in verse 14. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. In other words, Paul's own imprisonment has given others confidence to preach the gospel. That didn't mean that everyone preached it sincerely. He goes on in verse 15 to 18 to say that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry and others out of goodwill. And then he says in verse 17, he says the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition but not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me when I am in chains. And then he says in verse 18, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. That's remarkable. Isn't it? That's remarkable. Is that Paul even rejoices when some are preaching the gospel from false motives. From false motives. And not only that, but some are trying to stir up trouble for him. Some are trying to make life hard for him. And he rejoices. Because Christ is still being preached. What would you do in a situation like that? How would you react in a situation like that? Paul is so focused on the centrality of the gospel that what concerns him is not that these people are speaking from false motives ultimately, not that these people are making his life hard, but that the word of Christ is going out. It would have been easy for him to feel sorry for himself, like me and my little story many years ago. It would have been easy to think of his hurt ego. It would have been easy to, to, to bring them down a peg or two, to get some kind of, to get back at them somehow, certainly to get defensive, certainly to spread the word. And yet he doesn't. Not Paul. The only thing he's concerned about is that these people are nevertheless preaching Christ. So consider consider again the phrase that we started with in verse 12. Whatever has happened to me. Let's think about what has happened to Paul. He had planned to go and be a missionary in Spain. He'd been falsely accused. He's ended up in prison. There are preachers going out and preaching Christ, but causing Paul trouble in the process. But Paul will not be sidetracked from what is central. And what is central 
are not his plans, not his reputation, not his comfort, not his ego, but the gospel. But for Paul, the gospel is not a tract. You know what a tract is? A little pamphlet you open up. It's got a message in there about what Jesus has done, about what we can do. It's not a tract. It's not words. It's not theology or doctrine. It's not heaven. It's not a four-step formula. For Paul, the gospel is a person. Look at verse 20. In verse 20, he says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not, I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Do you you hear what Paul wants? His desire is to be not with a message, but with a person. In Philippians 3.10, he says, I want to know Christ. Paul is passionate for the gospel because he is passionate for Christ. The gospel is central to Paul because Christ is is central to Paul. And whether he lives or whether he dies, he wants people to look at him and for Christ to be exalted. If I could summarize perhaps what being a Christian looks like, what discipleship looks like, if I could summarize what I want for me, it would be this, that when people look at me, they see something of Christ. Please see something of Jesus. What would our lives need to look like for people to see us and for Christ to be exalted? What would your life need to look like for people to see you and to say, I see Jesus. I see Jesus. I see his character. The answer is in verse 27. And Paul summarizes it, really what their lives and our lives are to be. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourself, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the the gospel of Christ. What would it mean to live lives worthy of the gospel? What would it mean to live lives worthy of the gospel? Wouldn't that mean to live like the gospel is worth something? To live like the gospel is worth it. To live like the gospel has worth. Perhaps the best illustration I've ever come across of this is a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, if you have heard of him. He was a Puritan that lived back in the uh, 17th century, and he was in a pastor of a church for something like 20 to 25 years. He was a senior pastor, and he had this, uh, and he got into this dispute with his leadership over who could attend the communion, the Lord's Supper, who could take part in the Lord's Supper. It doesn't matter what the dispute was about, about what the dispute was about, or even uh, who was on what side. 
The fact of the matter is that they didn't like his view and they decided to fire him after 20 to 25 years of faithfully pastoring that church. And many commentators have looked back on that incident and thought of it as an unjust dismissal. Maybe you know someone or have even yourself been unjustly dismissed from work or or something. Someone looking on at this, observing Jonathan Edwards' reaction, said this. And the reason I give this illustration, because here is a man who is, in this instance, living a life worthy of the gospel. In other words, you look at him and you see Christ. This person said, I never saw the least symptoms of displeasure in his countenance the whole week. But he appeared like a man of God whose happiness was out of reach of his enemies and whose treasure was not only a future but a present good, overbalancing all imaginable ills of life, even to the astonishment of many who could not be at rest without his dismission. Now, I've read, I've read Jonathan Edwards' own account of this, and, and, and certainly he struggled, certainly that you know, uh, he had his own uh, struggles and he was hurt. But even in his last message that he preached at the church, you know, that might be an opportunity to get a little dig in somehow, to maybe elicit a little bit of sympathy from people, gather a little bit of self-pity and a little bit of compassion. But all he, was, all he did was encourage people to walk faithfully with Christ. Not once did he elicit any kind of sympathy. See, people around him got the impression that Christ was worth more than a job. People around him got the impression that Christ was worth more than being right. People around him got the impression that Christ was worth everything to him. There's a man who made the gospel central. You see, coming back to the Apostle Paul here, the gospel is everything to Paul. Jesus was, think about the gospel, Jesus also was falsely accused. Jesus was also arrested. Jesus was also put to death. Why? So to die for people like Paul, who was not innocent, who was not innocent, but through Jesus' death is able to be set free from the chains of sin. I've been reading this book. It's taken me a while because I tend to read a few books at a time. But it's called How to Really Love Your Child. And the book opens uh, talking about something that I'd actually read about um, some years ago, and that is that you can tell a child that you, as a parent, you can tell a child that you love them unconditionally every day, but that doesn't guarantee that they will feel loved. And that has always, uh, it's always been something that has bothered me because as a child, uh, all the way through my life, I was never told by my parents that they loved me. I love my parents, absolutely, and I know that they love me, but they never told me. And so I, having children, I resolved that I wanted to tell them every day 
that I love them. And it's not hard for me. My, one of my, my uh, favourite love language is encouragement, and so it comes naturally anyway. But every single day, if I'm around, if I'm in the country, if I'm not away somewhere, uh, I will tell them I love them. And I'll go overboard with that. And yet I am well aware that my words every is not necessarily a guarantee that they're going to feel unconditionally loved. And that's something that has really bothered me. How you can tell a child every day that they are unconditionally loved and yet at some point them not believe it. And then all of a sudden, last year it was, I had a light bulb moment. It suddenly... It suddenly occurred to me, I was working away at my computer, I was at home, I was working away at my computer and, and here's another child, one of my sons came along and started talking to me, engaging me in conversation and I just continued to work at my computer and just went, uh-huh, uh-huh, and uh-huh, and just engaged. And I, I, I thought I was doing something that isn't, that that usually I can't do. Men, apparently, we don't do well, and that is multitasking. I was, I was all of a sudden multitasking. I was being efficient. I was working and communicating with my son at the same time. Now, and then all of a sudden it occurred to me what I was doing. That's how a child can end up growing up feeling as though they're not unconditionally loved. Because I'm standing there at my computer going, uh huh, uh huh, thinking I'm giving him all the attention in the world, but what he's seeing? What is, what is he seeing? What am I communicating to him? What I'm communicating to him is that he is not worth my undivided attention. Did you hear that? What he is seeing Imagine if that goes on day after day after day, is that he is not worth my undivided attention. That's, that's, that right there has changed the way I communicate with my kids. It's changed the way I communicate with students. It has changed. It has been life transforming. If I could name a, you know, top five things, that would be in the top five. But what I want you to understand is that, is that what was being communicated to him was that he is not worth my undivided attention. What does it mean to live lives worthy of the gospel? It means to live like the gospel is worth our undivided attention. And yet so often we can nod our heads, we can sing the songs, We can pray the prayers, we can say the creeds, we can listen to the sermons. And yet then when a distraction comes into our lives, our attention is diverted by something of greater worth. Chains. Our comfort has been disrupted. Our ego has been bruised. Someone making our life hard. Someone saying that I cannot go off to seminary. All the while, nodding my head to the gospel. And yet what has been communicated is that the gospel is not worth my undivided attention. I don't know about you, but 
I don't feel worthy. I don't feel worthy. And there's no other way, I think, to make the gospel central than to have the gospel be central to us. And that means to reflect on it every day. To reflect on the fact that we are actually unworthy. And to reflect on what Christ has done. A colleague of mine told the story uh, a few years ago. There's a family on their way somewhere on a holiday and they're in a car, in their car and, or, or a minivan, I'm not sure what it was. And there was some kind of an explosion and there was a fire and they all had to get out and, uh, they all got out but the eight year old, there was an eight year old daughter left inside and the father went back inside for her and got her out and yet suffered horrible burns himself. He's okay. Fast forward eight years, the girl is now 16 years old. And so she's at that stage of life where there's a lot of things, I guess, that her parents are saying that she feels like a chains for her. Feels like she's being hindered, can't move forward. And there's one particular instance where she wants to go to some party and, the, and her father is saying no for whatever reason, it just doesn't think it's a good thing. And she is getting really ticked off. And so one night, she, one day she just decides she's going to just go and let him have it, all, all guns blazing. And she bursts into his bedroom, right to the bedroom door, and stands in front of him. And he's just got out of the shower and he's got his towel around him. And he says to her, what is it now? And then she says it doesn't matter. You see, what she can see right in front of him, right in front of her, are the marks all over her body, over his body, of where he was eight years before, going into that car for her. And she suddenly realises that he went in there for her because he thought about her and thought, she's worthwhile. She's worthwhile, me going in there. And she suddenly realised that her father wasn't trying to hinder her, but that she had a father who loved her. The only way to make the gospel central in our lives is for the gospel to become central for us. And the only way for that to happen is to reflect on the gospel daily. To understand that when Christ went to the cross, he looked at you and he looked at me. We were heading for the fires of hell, as it were. And he said about each one of us, you're worth it. It's worthwhile me going to the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, because we know sitting here, we know looking at our own lives that we are unworthy. We thank you, Father, for um, that your love does not depend on our worthiness, but on your worthiness. And because you are worth everything, then we, that is why we have hope now to live lives worthy of the gospel. So I pray, Father God, that you would help each of us, that you would uh, enable each of us to make the gospel central in our lives, to learn from Paul here in Philippians 1, to continue to reflect on the cross day after day. In Jesus' name, amen.